0: So where are you placing your hope? Where's the source of your confidence today? And that applies for us individually. It applies for us as Kingfisher. Now, where is your hope? Where is your confidence at this point in time? And in some ways, that's probably a difficult question to answer because we know what the correct answer should be. So maybe a more revealing question is what are you what am i what are we jealously guarding what are you jealously guarding at this point in time the 1991 film beauty and the beast i've used beauty and the beast before i think you need to if you've not watched this for the sake of the gospel watch beauty and the beast so many sort of fantastic insights there but um Beast, he jealously guards this enchanted rose. Because when the last petal of that rose falls, he remains cursed as a beast forever. This is where he's placing his hope, his confidence. So long as nothing causes that petal to fall, there is still a hope. And in fact, he jealously guards it to the point that he drives Bell away from the castle, who ironically is the one who's able to break the curse. He drives away his source of hope. Now what are we jealously guarding? And in jealously guarding it, are we missing the source of real hope? Now we're we're in Acts, uh, Luke Acts. Remember it's this two-volume work and in Luke, at the beginning, he tells us his purpose for writing, his purpose for writing is to assure us that Jesus is indeed the fulfillment of all that God has promised. And when we come to Acts, the second volume, it's the continued work of Jesus, the uh, risen, the ascended Jesus, who is now working in and through His church by the power of the Spirit. In the book of Acts, it consists of uh, six sections. If you're into musical symphonies, you might say six movements. If you are into box sets, we might say these are sort of six. Series And each of those sections are marked by this concluding statement. There's slight variations in it, but it basically is saying that the gospel spreads, the church grows, God's kingdom is moving forwards. And uh, last week, uh, Ben highlighted how in chapter six, we've got this movement. We're we're moving from some of the work of the apostles in Jerusalem and we're starting to move out. So actually, when we get to the end of uh, this section in chapter nine we see that the church grew throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, just as we saw at the beginning. you be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And so we've got this movement now. We're starting to move out from Jerusalem. Uh, and that begins with the speech of Stephen. As we saw this, the speech comes as a result of the opposition that Stephen is facing. There's a group that are opposing him. They're unable to argue against the wisdom that God gives him through the Spirit. So they present these trumped-up charges against him, similar to the charges that were brought against Jesus, speaking against the temple. uh, And they bring him to trial. So just a reminder there, in 6.11, have a look, 6.11, uh, they secretly persuade some people to say, this guy Stephen is speaking blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And more specifically, what those blasphemous words are meant to be, verse 14, we've heard him say, Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, and change the customs Moses handed down to us. And these were the things that the Jews who were opposing Stephen were jealously guarding. The temple, uh, which is this place, destroy this place, and the customs that Moses has handed down. They're jealously guarding these things. And so, in chapter 7, Stephen gives his defense to these accusations that are brought against him. Or actually, more accurately, he brings his prosecution... So the defender becomes the prosecutor. As we work through this passage, we're going to be considering uh, this question then about where are we placing our hope? Where are we placing our confidence? Firstly, then we're going to look at this problem of jealously holding on Stephen's speech, uh, verse one through to 53. There's a lot in here. Um, So we we (laughs) spent most of the time reading the passage There's a lot here. So I'm just going to pick out a a few things and make a few observations um, from Stephen's speech here. But notice, it begins with Abraham. The man that God promised to bless. We've been considering that in our morning series a few months back, haven't we? God calls Abraham and he says, like, Abraham, I want you so I can do so much good to you. I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing. And God's Promised to Abraham is of a people, it's of a place. So, if you have a look at verse 5, God promised him that he and his descendants, people after him, would possess the land, a place, even though at that time Abraham had no child. So, he has no descendants, but God makes his promise I'm going to give you a people, I'm going to give you a place. And the purpose for this, if you look at verse 7, when they come out of the country, when they brought into this place, and they will worship me in that place. The purpose is to worship God, to be God's people. And these are the great promises that God gives to Abraham, to his descendants. And yet time and time again, this is what Stephen will draw out, the people fight against those promises. It's as though they're trying to say, God, I, I don't want to be part of that covenant. You're promising to bless us, but we're going to do everything in our power to try and resist and to try and fight against it. That's what we see as Stephen recounts this story. God is still working to fulfil His purposes, and yet the people are working to fight against these promised blessings. And we see that verse nine. So the patriarchs—that's the the twelve tribes or well, where the twelve tribes came from—they're uh, jealous of Joseph. They try to get rid of Joseph. And Joseph is the one that God is going to use to deliver them from the famine. He is God's chosen deliverer at this point in time. And they're trying to get rid of him. It's a bit like beasts trying to drive Bell away. And the same thing happens with Moses. Verse 25. Moses thought his own people would realise that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. Verse 35. And this is the same Moses they rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself. Again, fighting against God's purposes, God sends them deliverers and they reject them. And then in verse 39, after God has rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, as he brings them out, as he's seeking to bring them into the land, what happens? They reject. Him, Moses, their hearts turn back to Egypt. They are trying their best to sabotage God's promises. Trying their best in some ways to cut themselves off from this covenant that God is making with Abraham. They tried to get rid of Joseph and in so doing they put that promise of a people in jeopardy. And there's no Joseph, the tribe would have died out. They they dismiss Moses, they long for Egypt, and they try to put that promise of a place in jeopardy, saying we don't want to go into that land. And then they turn to foreign gods and in so doing seek to put the purpose of worship into jeopardy. And so then in verse 42 to 43, Stephen gives this quote from Amos, Amos chapter 5, which is basically saying that from the period of the wilderness onwards, from the point that God had rescued his people, Their hearts were constantly turned towards idols. Now even as they came and as they brought these sacrifices and these offerings, their hearts were directed towards idols. And you see that throughout Israel's history. As enough time goes on, eventually the temple gets polluted. It gets turned into this place of pagan worship. And then there's some reforms. But it keeps coming back to it. The hearts are directed towards idols. And yet... Just have a a look at verse 44. Having said all this, having given this indictment, our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. They had the tabernacle in the wilderness. Joshua brought it into the promised land. David had it in his heart to, to build a temple for the Lord. Solomon builds it. So they have this place to worship God. And yet despite having the tabernacle, Despite having the temple, despite having all these instructions, traditions passed down, their hearts are still turned away to idols. And then we get to verse uh, 48. Uh, And then this quote from uh, Isaiah 66, which declares God does not need a house to live in. God's not short of places to live and reside. You cannot contain god the the purpose of the temple was not that god is is homeless and he needs somewhere to be god's desire is to dwell with his people to fellowship with his people but the temple the building is not essential for that purpose and yet and as isaiah 66 actually goes on to say if you read isaiah 66 the verses that follow talk about how the temple worship is actually hindering that purpose because the people are worshipping with our hearts still directed towards idols. And they're thinking, well, if I'm just going through these sacrifices, then everything is okay. Despite having all this stuff, the people's hearts are still idolatrous. And so at the beginning of Stephen's speech, now he's asked by the high priest, are these charges true? And basically, Stephen comes back by saying, yes, these charges are true, but they're not charges against me they charges against you. You want to know who's really speaking against what Moses handed down. You want to know who's really speaking against God's purpose in the temple. <clears throat> it's you guys. You've put me on trial because you were jealously guarding the temple and the customs that Moses handed down. And how's that going for you? This is what you're jealously guarding. You're jealously guarding the temple. These customs that Moses handed down. And how's that going for you? Well, well, let me just consider by looking back through Israel's history, and that's what Stephen's doing here. How's that going for you? And what's the conclusion? Verse 51. You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised you are just like your ancestors you already always resist the holy spirit you've put me on trial here because you are jealously guarding the temple you are jealously guarding these traditions that moses hand down handed down how's that going for you what difference has it made none whatsoever your hearts your ears they're still uncircumcised you're just like your ancestors you're in no better place What is it that you're jealously guarding? What is your source of hope? And how well is it working for you? It's not working at all. That's what Stephen is saying to those religious leaders here. How about if we turn that to ourselves? You know, what what are we jealously guarding? What do we fight to not let go of? And how's that working for us? These things that we place our hope and our confidence in, and how's that working out? Idols come in all shapes and sizes, even the small ones—they're still significant. Uh, We—it seems funny saying this with the family here—we on a—we um, on a Friday evening sometimes we have a film night. It's good fun, isn't it, having a film night on a Friday? Uh, what follows isn't always as fun because then it's time to get to bed and um, we're not always the quickest at getting to bed afterwards, are we? Slothfully slow. And I can feel it in those moments. I I get frustrated and I get grumpy and I apologise, kids. But what is that revealing? And actually, it's, it's me jealously guarding my Friday evening. And, and the slothfulness... Of getting to bed slower than normal is eating into this thing that I am jealously guarding as so though I need it and so that 's my source of hope and if if i don 't if i don't get that i 'm not going to get what I need and the question I need to be asking myself is well how 's that going for you Paul you're jealously guarding your Friday evening how's that working out for you is that growing you in patience and And love and care and kindness. Well, not really. Because if I manage to get my Friday evening, I can become just as frustrated the next Friday evening when it's still a slow progress to get upstairs. Just because I've had that Friday evening, it is not changing and transforming me. How well is that thing going that I'm jealously guarding? So if you want something to pray for me, pray for me on Friday evenings. That I don't look to a a free Friday evening as my source of hope. That that's not what's going to give what I need, but that I'm looking to Christ. Whether I have a free Friday evening or not, really it doesn't matter. I don't need to jealously guard it. I need to look to Christ. What are you jealously guarding? What's that thing that you're holding on to? And if someone suggests that you let go of it or, or something seems to take it away and that anger and that frustration rises and you're like, I, I cannot let go of that. What is that thing that you're jealously guarding? What are we jealously guarding as Kingfisher Church? Now we're a relatively young church. We're known for not being very slick. Um, so in some ways we're not, necessarily at the risk of having a lot of traditions and a lot of slick systems that we jealously guard but you know as time goes on there's a potential for that to become a real temptation our hope and prayer is that kingfisher church whether it exists by that name or not and maybe that's a change that we could seek to jealously guard no we'll still be here in generations to come but as time goes on, there's that temptation to, this is the way we've always done it. And this is the way that works. And if if we deviate from this way, then it's not going to work anymore. And if we seek to jealously guard that, it's a sign that that's what we're putting our hope, that's what we're putting our confidence in. What is it that we are seeking to jealously guard? I remember Luke's purpose statement. These accounts, they're all brought together. These are recorded For the purpose of assuring us that Jesus is indeed the fulfillment of all God's promises, of all God's purposes. The religious leaders here in Acts, they're jealously guarding the temple, they're jealously guarding these traditions, they're jealously guarding the law. And though God gave the law, God gave the temple, they were good things. They were powerless to bring about that change and transformation that was necessary. They couldn't. Circumcise the heart. They couldn't bring about this new life. As we see in this account from Acts, it, it, it's not the temple that's going to do that. It is Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that God has promised, of all that God has purposed. And so uh, in our closing moments, let, let's consider that power of Jesus Christ, the power of Jesus to take hold. verse 54 and following so the Sanhedrin they are furious when they hear this message from Stephen their idols have just been publicly exposed so they're out there they're gnashing their teeth they're furious at him and then Stephen's given this vision this vision that displays that demonstrates the power of Christ he says in verse 56 look I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And it's as though this veil between heaven and earth is, is opened up. He sees into to heaven and is breaking into earth. And that's what the temple was meant to be. The temple is meant to be this place where heaven and earth touches. The reason that the temple was there is the place where God would dwell so that he can meet, or rather... People can meet with God. This place where heaven and earth united. And the religious leaders, the whole reason they have Stephen on trial is because they're jealously guarding this temple. It was a source of their confidence. It's the source of their hope. But it's of no benefit. It's bringing about no change. It's bringing about no transformation. They're no closer to God. And yet here, Stephen declares, I see it. I see the very thing that I've been proclaiming. What the temple is meant to be. And I'm telling you, Jesus is what the temple is meant to be. And I see it now. Heaven is open. I see this opening between heaven and earth. And who is there? The son of man who is standing at the right hand of God. The son of man being a term that Jesus frequently used of himself. It's taken from Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, Daniel has this vision of this Heavenly human figure. So there's descriptions of him riding the clouds, which is what God does in the cloud chariot. And yet there's this human like figure, this God man. And Jesus declared himself to be the Son of Man. And as he was standing before the Sanhedrin at his trial, he said to them, What you are going to see now, as you condemn me now, you're going to see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God. Daniel 7 is going to be fulfilled psalm 110 he brings those two together the son of man from daniel 7 uh, and being seated at the right hand of god from psalm 110 what's interesting here notice the son of man jesus is standing he's not seated now back in chapter 6 13 uh, when these people are stirring up trouble uh, they produce false witnesses now who testify that Stephen speaking against his holy place. Literally, they stood up false witnesses. They stood up these false witnesses. And yet here stands Jesus. Jesus stands as the true witness. Saying everything that Stephen has said is true. I am the one, I am the way. And as Stephen faces the Sanhedrin then, speaking against the temple, so they claim, that he sees this vision Heaven is open and there Jesus is standing as the true witness, as the true judge and as the true temple. And yet, true to everything that Stephen has said, the people follow that same pattern. They they cover their ears, they yell at the top of their voices so they cannot hear what is being spoken. They rush at Stephen, they drag him out of the city and they kill him. But just before Stephen dies, he utters one last prayer, verse 60. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Just notice in chapter 8, verse 1, who's there? Saul. Saul. Saul is included in the them. And as Stephen prays, to, to the source of, of true power, to true, true change and, and transformation, as he looks to the Lord Jesus Christ and he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And Paul is included in that number. Now, what was Saul, rather, at this point? Before he's known by his Roman name, Paul. And why is it that Saul approves of their killing of Stephen? he testifies later in his epistles. He was one who jealously guarded the temple, who jealously guarded the traditions of his ancestors. And yet all those things that he sought to jealously guard, they had no power to circumcise the heart, as Stephen says in verse 51. They couldn't bring about that change and that transformation. They cannot bring about or overcome the perverse leaning within our human hearts to want to reject God's blessing. This perverse leaning towards a self-destruction. And yet, as we know, and we're not there yet, but we know in Acts, this change and this transformation that occurs in Saul's life, not because of what he jealously held on to, but because Jesus, the one with all power and all authority, the one who could bring about true change and transformation, he takes a hold of him so back to that question we're considering this evening, what, what, what are you, what are we jealously holding on to at this point in time? And then we need to ask ourselves that question. How's it going for us? These things that we hold on to, how's it going? And that might be to do with our acceptance before God as we considered this morning. There might be things that we seek to jealously hold on to about growth in the Christian life or witness in the Christian life. What are you jealously holding on to at this point in time? And how's that been working out so far? Because we have something better. We have someone better. We have Jesus Christ who stands at the right hand Of the Father and who moves towards us in order that our hearts may be turned to Him, that we may experience the blessing of God. Jesus is the one who has power to change and transform, to to bring life, to break through the hardness of our hearts. And that's, that's important for us to remember as we come to our holiday club this week. Where's our confidence? Where's our hope? going to be. Now, yeah, we, you know, we, we want to do well. We want to invest our time in this, but it's not going to come from having fantastic activity sheets or, or a brilliant drama or fantastically sung songs. As much as we are seeking to do those things well, our source of hope and our source of confidence is in Jesus Christ himself. He's the one who has the power To bring about that change and that transformation, not only in our lives, but in the lives of our friends and our families, in our community here. Our confidence is not found in the things that we so often jealously hold on to. It's found in Jesus, who in his great power, his persistence, and his love, takes hold of us. I think it's worth just closing with uh, the words that, that Saul, Paul, uh, would later write to the Philippians. Philippians 3. Whatever we gains to me, those things I once jealously held on to, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we we can have, that we do have that certain confidence. And it's not based on what we, we so often seek to hold on to, but on the fact that we have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus himself. Father, will you forgive us for the, the many things, whether big or, or small in our own eyes, And yet always significant. Lord that we seek to hold on to as a means of our hope. As a means of our confidence. Lord and help us to see the greater work of Christ. Lord to bring us to you. to, To move us on in maturity into Christ. Lord that all comes from your hand. Or the fact that you have taken hold of us in Christ. May our eyes be fixed on him. And we pray that particularly as well this week in the holiday club with all the busyness and things that that we're doing and all the practicalities that are there. We thank you that we have the opportunity to serve in this manner. And yet we do pray that our hearts are guarded. that, That we wouldn't be distracted, that our focus would not move off onto all the practicalities, but that we would keep our gaze set on Christ and however things go, that he would be our source of confidence, that we would be looking to you and seeking you. And we do pray that you would bring about a great change and transformation in people's lives. And even that we would be privileged to be able to see that. But even this week, we thank you that we pray to you, Lord, a God who who is not impotent in power, but who is mighty to save. Lord, help us to see uh, that Christ is all we need. Amen.